This is Unstructured. My name is Isaiah Gooley, and this is Unstructured. Unstructured is a conversation with a variety of different people about a variety of different topics. There's no agenda. All we want to do is learn. And the best way to learn is by talking to other people. I hope whomever finds this podcast can enjoy as much as we enjoy making it. Thank you. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Unstructured Podcast. And I am, I've previously been a guest on this podcast. Today I am your host because today's guest is your regular host. Um, Just, you know, obviously when you're doing a podcast, so much of what you're trying to do is figure out who's this person who's talking to all these people and what's going on in his head and what's his story. And so I suggested to Eric that it would be a really, really good thing for listeners to get to know Eric a little bit more, um, because then they'll better understand where he's coming from, what he's saying. And, uh, you know, then you'll know why he makes offensive comments all the time. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Oh, Uh, Oh, my. No, so Eric, I mean, you, you know, I mean, you were good enough to have me on the show and ask me all these questions, and I, I think the real question is, uh, who is Eric Hunley? Like, where does Eric Hunley come from? What are the experiences that have shaped him? So, I think we should just begin at the beginning. Um, so, so where where did you grow up? I was born and raised in Tucson, Arizona, mm. child of the desert. Now, so what's what's Tucson like? How's it? I mean, when I think of my limited Arizona geography, I think of Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what's what's the character of Tucson versus the character of Phoenix? Uh, Phoenix is much larger. It's one of the largest cities in the nation and overbuilt, a bit hotter, a bit drier, less pretty. Tucson is it is a desert, but yet there is some beauty there. And I'm proud of what they've done with the architecture and the buildings, et cetera. One really neat thing is there's a lot of stucco used out there. So while you'll see a 7-Eleven, let's say anywhere in the country, they always look like a 7-Eleven. Often in Tucson, it'll be kind of a, a reddish to brown stucco. So when you're looking out at the landscape, the buildings themselves are blending in with the environment, which really makes for a nice tapestry. It also, there's some rain at times. And when it rains out there, it explodes in blooms. Mm-hmm. So it's short but pretty. Um, which is how I describe Brian Callen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so uh, so growing up in Tucson, and then you know, what's your what were your mom and dad like? What was their story? Where'd they come from? Um, they had kind of a, a, a interesting background. My dad is pretty much a redneck from Northern California. Um, he was born in Mount Erie, Illinois. Blink, it's gone. Um, and raised in Elmira, California. Hey, you, know, you did this on the Lucho podcast, which I listened to, but I'm also going to have to stop you and take you back to that, right? So, I mean, this is like, my mom's from Kansas, and I always, my favorite was Mount Oread, which is the highest mountain in Kansas. It's about 800 meters tall. (laughs) (laughs) At some point, like, you know, Pluto style, certain things don't get to be called a planet and certain things don't get to be called a mountain. How high is Mount Erie? Um, I think it's level. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
Uh, okay, so having thoroughly insulted, uh, you know, <laughs> Illinois' mountain range, um, so he he went from Mount Erie, and then where did he go? He went to Northern California. Um, yes, he was in. Um, he was raised in Elmira, which is just off of Vacaville. Oh, I actually know somebody from Vacaville. Um, so yeah, so that's like. You know, I mean, that's the red part of California, right? The, the part exactly. of California that votes red. Okay, so that's that's your dad. And then what about your mom? She was born and raised in East L.A. Oh, wow. Well, well born in Baltimore, raised in East L.A. Um, do you remember the movie Colors? No. Um, it was in the 80s. It was one of the first gang movies. Uh, Ice-T did the soundtrack. The um, prevailing gang in that movie is the White Fence Gang. They were her neighbors. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, when you said East L.A., I was like, you mean Chicano gang territory? Mm-hmm. Um, although, I mean, because when when was she there? Not to age you, but... Oh, I'm older than you. We know. <laughs> <laughs> um, she was there in the 50s, 60s. She was yeah. born in um, 37. Mm-hmm. So. so she probably was there in the sort of transition period, right? Because, I mean, I don't know what East L.A. was like. At that time, or when were people coming in? Well, it it was more knifey gangs than than gun gangs. Yeah, I know. That's so <laughs> gun gangs are so much more exciting. Um, well, the problem but, with them is the White Fence Gang, what she was around, is a multi-generational gang. Yeah. It was almost like a, a organized crime. Yep. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Um, okay, so, so, I mean... For the first thing I'm thinking is it sounds like there's there's all sorts of historical trauma and cultural baggage there for both your parents, right? I mean, you know, like your mom didn't grow up in a in a in a safe neighborhood. It doesn't sound like no. Is that no. fair? No, it wasn't safe. She wasn't really safe at home. My my uh, biological grandfather was a drunk. He died essentially of alcoholism, and he was also I hate to talk ill to dead, but he was a shit. Yeah. He made a habit of bringing home hamburger for the family and have a steak in front of them. Oh, that's, um, classy. Yeah. 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 And I mean, you know, I mean, not to speak ill of the dead and I'm sure that, you know, if we could get him on the podcast, which one of my major problems with podcasting is the inability to summon the dead. Um, (laughs) cause there are a lot of dead people I'd like to get on the podcast, but, um, you know, uh, the the problem is, is that, you know, obviously they had whatever historical trauma sure. they had, whatever, you know, and all that stuff gets passed down. But regardless, the behavior is terrible. Mm. Um, so, OK, so that's that's your parents. And then how'd your parents meet? Um, you know, I'm not completely sure. I know they met my mother was going to nursing school. Um, she got her B.A. and an R.N. And. My father somehow met her, probably like at Disneyland or something. I don't know. He was in the Marines. They met somehow for a dance, and he's a little crazy, or was a little crazy. He essentially said, I'm going to marry you when he met her. Mm -hmm. And he pursued her for a while. And I guess he had a breakthrough with her because she was um, by herself on a shift at the hospital one um, weekend. It was by herself, and the phone just started ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing, and it wouldn't let up, and that was him. <laughs> and he somehow, like, cracked into her, 
during yeah. that because she was you know completely isolated at that moment feeling really lonely and he essentially bowled her over yeah and you know i mean that sort of behavior right is that i mean i think 50 years ago that would have been called romantic and now it would be called stalking right <laughs> well, it it only depends on the outcome yeah it does it really does um Okay, so so your dad, very persistent guy, right? Like yes. sets his sets his eyes on something, has his mindset on something, is going to make it happen no matter what, right? Yes, hyper generous too. Oh, okay. That these are these are good values um, because I know from the last podcast when we talked about my own father that it seems like. Um, you know, there's obviously you know there's there's strong feelings for you around both your parents, right? Mm-hmm. So. What was what was your experience of like how did you make sense of your mom and your dad when you were a kid? What what did you think of each of them? Um like a typical boy, I thought my mother was a, a saint. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, my father I both admired and feared mm-hmm. deeply. Um he was a scary guy. Very, very scary. He would um get explosive. Um, he had more strength than any human being I've ever seen. Just pure raw physical power that is unimaginable. Um, I, I was in a a dump truck that was about to tip over and saw him. He took a railroad tie out of the ground and jammed it under the dump truck and propped it. I, I, I've never seen anything like it. You know, that he could, um, perform that kind of just insane strength out of nowhere. And I know that came from his father. I don't want to stray too far, but his father sparred with Joe Lewis and was a big arm wrestling guy where this doctor would fly people out to his house to have them arm wrestle him over, you know, like large stake bets. That's pretty cool. I mean, that's worth straying for. And I mean, this is the unstructured podcast, so <laughs> we can we can be unstructured. But OK, so so there's this real sense of strength and real mm-hmm. actual strength. Um, but then, I mean, you know, what what does explosive mean? Does he is he screaming? Is he physically violent? What what are what is that explosiveness? Be physically violent. Like if um, he was building a ramp for the goats one time. It wasn't going the way he liked it. He just started to kick it, got in the tractor, and just ran it over and smashed it to pieces. Mm. So, yeah, that's that's where that uh, Scots-Irish redneck, uh, mm-hmm. you know, honor culture um, really comes out. Have you have you read um, Hillbilly, like Elegy. Red, Hillbilly Elegy, Black sure. Rednecks? Does, does that ring true for you in your childhood? Absolutely. Um, but in fairness, he was fighting against what he had. I didn't realize that until later, but, um, Mm -hmm. I had it easy compared to him. Yeah. He grew up with a bunch of siblings. His father would beat him with bailing wire. His mother would say, go out and get me the stick. And if the stick wasn't big enough because they're clever, she'd use it, break it, and then make him go get a larger one and use mm. that. So it's hard. I mean, it's so hard. Every story he had, save one, was about a fight with a sibling. And it almost got tiresome. Like, okay, dad, 
or my wife would say, okay, Jerry, we don't need to hear about just filling the blank fight. And the one story he told that wasn't about a fight, I, I thought it was actually a, a delightful, funny story. And, and that's why it stands out so much. He was traveling home from seeing a horror movie. I think it was actually The Blob when it very first came out. And it was dark and he was, you know, walking home and he tripped and fell into this ditch and there happened to be a wire going across that he caught and he was hanging on for dear life, hanging over this giant, giant ravine to scare it out of his mind. He didn't know what to do. And finally he got exhausted after a few minutes and fell four inches to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just such a delightful departure from um, how he beat up this brother or that brother beat up that brother or this brother was a martial arts champion or um, one uncle was the command sergeant major of the Marines, I believe, or right in that category, worked with them. Uh, all of it blurs together. Right. Because it is just constant combat, constant fighting. Sure. You know, and then... um because what was your okay? So wh- what? Where was your mom's family from? Like, what was their sort of cultural heritage? Um, my great grandmother. I don't know much about her. I know that she was very, very religious. She ran a restaurant, and she never saw a doctor until she died. Mm-hmm. And she died in her eighties. So it wasn't totally yeah. terrible. Um, her husband, first husband, who was my grandmother's father, um, he worked the railroad and I believe they lived in Nebraska and she talked about, um, how she met uh, some Indians, you know, firsthand and saw it was apparently during some of that time when they were really being dislocated and they were shifting and, and they was still pretty rural and pretty scary, I guess, out there. In the early um, 20th century. But I never got deeply into her past. Um, my grandfather, or the one I consider my grandfather, was her second husband, mm-hmm. John. And he was a security guard, and he had a garden in our at our land that he tended to, and I was a puppy. I would, yeah. just, I would just hug his leg practically and follow him everywhere. I think yeah. I loved him more than than any figure in my entire life. So that's that's a huge, huge influence. And so um why why do you think you loved him so much? Um he just showed me genuine care. He yeah. He actually was interested in what I had to say. I personally think I probably drove him a little crazy, but he never made me feel like he did, you know, like I did. Yeah, but I think that's part of it is, is that if you don't have that in your environment, then obviously, and you know, I mean, that's a basic psychological need. I mean, for all of us, but I mean, particularly for a child is to be loved. And, you know, I mean, if there's one person who you're is offering you that, then you're going to cling to that person like, you know, um, a drowning man clinging to uh, the one log in the ocean. So I don't, I think that's, and you know, good on him for being able to handle and absorb and understand that much love. And if he was that kind of guy, I'm sure he probably understood and had the context of like this kid needs someone and he's not getting it anywhere else. And so 
it falls to me and I have a responsibility to absorb that much love and passion. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't want to blame my parents completely. It's just different things. Um, my mom was there. I mean, she was a stay at home mom, but I was a free range kid. I, I lived on 10 acres in the middle of the desert. My nearest friend was about a mile away across the desert. So didn't really see them much, but to her credit, every week she'd take me to the library mm-hmm. and I essentially walked out with my arms outstretched and books stacked on my chin. And, That's awesome. Uh, yeah. And then I'd usually run out of them about two or three days before I had to go back to the library. Yeah. <laughs> So later I married a librarian, but I'm skipping. Well, that was smart. That was smart. (laughs) But also, I mean, you know, that clearly the library had a special place in your heart. So, you know, it's uh, and I heard you use this great line on the Lucho podcast about what your wife says about you going to the library. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I went to the library and checked her out. (laughs) But I mean, you know, there's clearly like libraries um, have like a very specific emotional place in your life. Right. Oh, sure. Even the uh, smell, the smell alone, yeah. you, libraries have a specific smell and that smell will always be home or warmth in my mind. Kind of like yep. how they bake cookies in a house before they sell it. Mm-hmm. So the smells wafty and people are like, oh, it just feels right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Um, that's, that's really interesting. Okay. So, um, and I mean, smell is so powerful in general. I mean, in terms of evoking memories, in terms of creating experiences, um, <clears throat> you know, I mean, the the famous example of this is Proust's Remembrance of Things Past, where it's this massive long novel about his uh, his whole life. And it's all triggered by the smell of a Madeleine cookie, which reminded him of his childhood. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think I think that's that's really interesting. Um so, okay, so uh, so we've we've got all of that, but so you uh, you really, it sounds like <laughs> in many senses that your father was like Pharaoh, right? Like the, to, to be, you know, admired, like he's powerful, but also there's a there's a fear there because he has these violent outbursts that you don't understand. Now you understand him a little bit better in the mm-hmm. sense that you have the context of everything that he was trying to recover from in his own childhood. Right. Uh, and I had shame. But, and you had shame. What was the shame? I was weak. Mm-hmm. When I was really young, I was sickly. I mm-hmm. had asthma so bad that I would be taken to the emergency room and be given adrenaline shots. Mm-hmm. And he came from strength. Every yeah. generation, technically, we've gotten weaker. He's weaker mm-hmm. than his father. Right. I'm weaker than he is. I'm stronger than people think, but... I'm not his strength. And growing up, that was kind of a shame. Also, he raised horses, and I didn't find out some of the reasoning behind it later. But because I was allergic to hay, and I really didn't like getting thrown off the horse and kicked in the head a few times, (laughs) I just didn't bond as much with the horses, even though I guess they sort of bonded with me really well. So my sister was sort of the boy. Hmm. And she was seven years older, though. So it, there's some weird spreads in there. But she would do barrel racing and um, other activities and showing it was a masterful writer. And I found out in recent years that part of what broke his heart was I have an affinity with animals 
Um, and he had never seen anybody have the same affinity with animals. And he thought that I would have been truly a great horseman, potentially an Olympian. But that you never pursued that because you didn't feel the same way about the animals. Essentially, yes. Now, I did um, bond with the goats later and every other animal in the place, but never yeah. really with the horses. But there's no Olympic goat riding, so... Not yet. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're really going to have to sink below the level of rhythmic dancing to, like, get Olympic goat riding. Um, but, you know, I, I'm glad that I've offended all the rhythmic dancers who listen to your podcast. Um, it's a sport! <laughs> um but okay, so so that's interesting. So there's this this shame and this feeling of inadequacy and you know, feeling like, you know, you're the weakest generation. So does that influence your decision to then go into the military? No, not really. No? So that was no. a, so what was what was going into the military about for you? Money. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um and, and most and soldiers I I, I don't want to besmirch everyone, but the truth is that many, many, many soldiers just, they get dropped off to the recruiter when they turn 18. Right. It is a place that you can find yourself. Um, that doesn't make them unpatriotic, but they're not necessarily super patriots. Not everyone in the army is, you know, ura ura. And at that point, especially with my school background, everything I was taught, I was I'm not borderline socialist. I mean, kind of. I, I was taught to hate America. Really? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Who taught you to hate America? Most teachers. Um, yeah. And this is in the 80s. We still had the right. Viet Vietnam hangover. Right. Um, remember, we still had all the veterans that were back there that were going to go send back and get them. And actually, you're too young. <laughs> so you don't remember what? all this. Well, there was a very significant agent. You're about, what, 36? Yeah. Okay, Exactly. So, I mean, um, Jesus, you, you aged me like a, a man counting rings on a tree. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> I'm 47. Yeah. That, that 10 years is a big deal. Yeah. See, when you were a um, really young man, 9-11 happened, and our whole country perspective changed on that day. But the years before that, mm-mm. We were not uber patriotic. Right. So I, right. I do think there's a societal shift that occurred. And I'm a full-on Gen Xer. There's a never been mm -hmm. a more cynical generation than mine. Yeah, well, and understandably so. I mean, you know, given the recent history that you guys are coming out of, mm -hmm. right? Um, so that's interesting. And also, I mean, when did you serve in the when when did you serve in the military? Um, from 92 until 98. So you were there during, I mean, the major things going on were Bosnia. Um, right. I didn't really, I wasn't affected by Bosnia at all. Um, I was trained in Fort Irwin, California in the middle of the desert. Go figure. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I actually volunteered to invade Haiti. Because I hated my Personal. life so much. Yes, they, they needed um, four people from our, <laughs> our group to go invade Haiti. Are you serious? Oh, absolutely. Anything that's to get an, away. That's an amazing conversation, right? Like, 
We need four four good men to go invade Haiti. Don't worry, you won't be doing it entirely on your own. <laughs> right, they're pulling from every command. But, I mean, yeah. to back up, wh- why I got in the military was to get money. Um, mm-hmm. I was writing articles. Um, I got picked up by the Manhattan Mercury on occasion in Manhattan, Kansas. And that was nice, but they're 50 bucks an article, and maybe I can get one a month. So I was donating plasma. Wow. You know, that, you know, that bought me cigarettes. You know, essentially yeah. couch crashing, plasma donating, um, working at a restaurant for a bit. It, it wasn't great. So I was like, well, the Navy w- rejected me back when I was 18, but the Army doesn't know about them. <laughs> so I'll just make sure I fill things out correctly. <laughs> So when it's because also that's that's part of it, right? Like, I mean, you know, you you talked, you sent me this uh, write up um, and, you know, you grew up poor. So, you know, I mean, was there a desire for sort of the financial security of a government job and, you know, three squares a day and all of that or? Yeah, I mean, my ultimate goal when I went in was I could be paid to be a journalist. Right. I mean. Um, later on, when I tried to learn bass, I was like, boy, it would be awesome. You know, the best gig in the world is being a, a military musician. You're paid to practice your instrument all day, and they're some of the best in the world. Yeah. But um, when I went to go, uh, I took the ASVAB and pretty much aced it. Um, and that caused me problems later. How did that cause you problems? And ASVAB is what the military uh, yeah. aptitude test? Yeah armed services, vocational aptitude battery, something like that. Um, they focus in on one score called the general tech or GT score. And that's combined combining like written vocabulary and um, basic math. I don't know, spatial, but um, that score was extremely high. I, I was qualified for every single job in the army or that's in good. all services actually. And, um, so when I went into the uh, MEPS, is what they call it, where you process, I was like, I want to be an Army journalist. And they're like, mm. well, I see you've written your, your cute little articles there that you photocopy. That, that's, that's, that's good there, young soldier. Um, but we only have four jobs available in the Army right now. And coincidentally, they were cook, mechanic, infantry, and engineer. And I don't know if you know what a military engineer is, but let's just say they're not drawing sketches and building buildings. They're laying mines and barbed wire. (laughs) Anyway, so I was like, "Um, well, my recruiter said I could do anything. Well, yes, son, but they just don't. They're just not available. Times are tough. You know, uh, military, we're shrinking right now. So this is all we got. But you know what? We, We have such a need for people in these fields that um, the cook, you could be that and not only get that job, but we'll give you a bonus. We'll give you a few grand. So you know what's coming now, right? Yeah, you became the cook? (laughs) Absolutely, because I was told that I'd be a cook, but because I could write, I would be probably put on special duty on the military base and writing for the paper. Mm, And then did that actually happen? Sort of. What yeah. happened was I did, in fact, write for the paper. I did, in fact, interview the general and everyone else involved. 
And I was used by someone who was a master sergeant to write up our facility and get the press on it, which helped the facility win the award as the best dining facility in the entire army. And as part of that deal, he was going to let me go to the paper. And by the way, he got promoted to Sergeant Major off of that win. Oh, that's good. Yeah, except he forgot to let me go. (laughs) He kept me pinned in the dining facility, which I hated. I hated it. Understandably. I mean, what, because what kind of food were you? I mean, like, I can't imagine that, you know, the military. Actually. Is it really? Top notch. There are chefs that come out of the army. They were really good. They did earn that award, but yeah, that wasn't my thing. I didn't like it. And when I got there, we're going to circle back to the GT. I had the highest GT on the military installation. And I would ask for help because it's new to me. I don't know how to do things. So I would say, Hey, um, how do I do such and such? You've got the GT. You figure it out. So funny. Um, Eric, I'm going to pause here because I'm sure. currently, you know, receiving vampire levels of radiation in my face. Okay. Um, yeah, that is way better. Um, Okay, great. Um, so, all right. So, um, you know, I, I went to a recruiting office, uh, actually when I was about to graduate, basically because I was like, wait a minute, this could be a job where I would get to learn languages all day. Cool. Um, and then they made it clear, <laughs> like the guy starts off the sales pitch. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then it became very clear that that may not be where I was put necessarily. And I was like, Oh, I understand how this works. (laughs) And then I was like, yeah, I don't think I'll be joining the armed services. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's interesting. Um, so how good of a cook are you nowadays? Terrible. Oh, (laughs) is that because institutional cooking is so different from domestic and home cooking? Like, is it, no, I just hate it. It, oh. it, it's a hang up. I mean, I, I can yeah. do it and I can probably do it well if I apply myself to it. I just don't like it. Um, I hated it then. Uh, I felt like I was being oppressed and trapped into something that I hated. And I was used, tricked and everything else. So that there's a ton of bitter baggage there, which I'll freely admit. Yeah. And then is that even part of the reason why you volunteered to go to Haiti? Because you were like, I need to get out of the kitchen. Absolutely. I, first, I was going to the field. Um, we had Op 4 at Fort Irwin. I think they probably still do where we played um, so the Red Army, which was a Soviet equivalent. And every other base essentially would come in and train and fight the Op 4 and lose. And I would cook in the desert on MKTs, which are these uh, trailers, kitchen trailers, mobile kitchen trailer. Now, Fort Irwin, I don't know if you've been there. It's right next to Death Valley, just about. So 130 degrees by 10 o'clock to noon. Sounds like a fun place to spend a lot of time in a hot kitchen. Absolutely. It was, uh, (laughs) we would do five minute shifts 
Five minute shifts? Yes. Well, it was 180 degrees plus inside of there because we were running gasoline stoves, six of them. Oh. In the desert, where it's already north of 120. So I, I managed to get off of that and, you know, got my driver's license to drive trucks. So I would drive people in. I would drive to deliver food. I got into fixing the um, the actual stoves so I wouldn't have to cook. So anything to not cook, anything to not wear what I consider the stupid white uniform that flagged me as one of the dumbest people in the Army. That's also okay. So that's that's the the sort of internal prejudice of the army is you see somebody as a cook, then they're an idiot. Uh, yes, it's not only a prejudice though, but if you uh, screw up in your initial job, you get reclassed. Guess what's bottom? Yeah, being cook, but but also, and that presumably when you chose that, when you you know gave yourself that self inflicted gunshot wound, you didn't realize that you were i mean like when you decided to be a cook you didn't understand what you were signing up for no i i i was tricked and let yeah. myself be tricked and i was only biding my time to go work at the paper and right. i mean that we fought um all the way up to command the um the civilian who ran the paper was fighting desperately to get me on staff right but um because i had that bonus that's the irony I was a poor kid. I wanted that money. That bonus locked me in even more. That's amazing. And so, and also, I mean, it just seems from the army's point of view that you got this guy who aces the ASVAB and then you assign him to the place where his skills and intelligence are least used. Yeah, essentially. And then I get punished for it. I mean, when I reported for duty, the reason why that GT score even came up I didn't say anything about it, but I reported to the duty station, to the company, and we had um, a first sergeant there. He's called Top. That's kind of a nickname. And the guy in processing looked at my form. He goes, whoa, Top, this guy's GT's higher than yours. Oh, shit. And the word spread. Yeah. Not helpful. Right. (laughs) So... My GT score was higher than the top enlisted person in the freaking company. Thank you very much. Right. Right. That's so now uh, there's a status threat to him. And so therefore, I mean, do you think he deliberately like was trying to? I don't think he was. Um, I actually think he was a good guy. And he taught me one of my favorite um, derogatory, derogatory terms in the world. Oxygen thief. (laughs) It's amazing. <laughs> I love that one. Um, but um, but the others but the point proving is, themselves yeah. to him kind of took it and ran with it. I think, which is even worse. Yeah. I I can't. Yeah, he was a good leader and a good man. Um, but there's a lot of sniveling, um, suck ups. Yeah, as there are in any group. Um, and unfortunately, so then it sounds like essentially, you know, in yeah, so then for on top of being in this horrible job, this horrible weather, 180 degrees, uh, so not only were you physically on the sun, you were also emotionally and socially on the sun with all these people trying to prove themselves to top by, like, 
you know, targeting you in some way. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, so that sounds like hell. So I'm I can only imagine how glad you were to get out of the army. Ironically, there was more to the army. It wasn't Yeah. I, it served an important point in my life because sometimes I think you have to go through hell to discover who you are. Mm-hmm. And I hated it so much at Fort Irwin that yes, I volunteered to invade Haiti to get out of Fort Irwin and I wound up in Cuba. And how was Cuba? Cuba was life changing because I've just gone through every bit of drama I felt then, you know, never mind the other kid stuff, but I was suffering so deeply and I had my personal angst that was so deep that when I went to Cuba, I had to care for migrants and holy shit, they had real problems. Right. Mine were a joke. I mean, if we really break it down, I'm suddenly talking to these amazing people because the refugees in Cuba in the 90s, there was over 100,000 of them. It was like if you just went in and just grabbed a big chunk of their society and brought it over, that was them. So we had doctors and lawyers and artists, and one of the guys helping me was a, um, a circus guy. He did like trapeze and aerobics and he used to work out with a mop handle and um, five gallon buckets. He was just this little short dynamic wonder. He would make even the great Brian Callen jealous. Oh, well, nobody can make Brian Callen jealous because he's so poised and centered within himself <laughs> that he never has any sort of insecurity or self doubt. But hypothetically, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> um, anyway, he was an amazing person. And I met this other guy who was my age. I, I went into the military. I was older than a lot of um, initial vets. So I, I went in at drinking age. I was 22. Um, had my birthday in basic training. Big fun. Um, <laughs> anyway, this guy was also 22. And I believe he had two degrees. I had none. He spoke two languages fluently. i still working on mine. Mm-hmm. Yet I'm having to tell him where to go and what to do and how to do things. Why? Because of where I was born. Yep. Nothing else separated us except for that. He was far more deserving than I in, in many, many ways. And that was profound. I mean, just knowing these people and, and talking with them and, and how they had tears in their eyes when they talked about oh what happened you're on oh she she's with the fishes these people they died just trying to get to what i was born with and i think uh i mean obviously i relate to that pretty strongly and i think you know there there are two important conclusions that you reached out of that which i also reached which is one that privilege is relative Um, and you know, I think it's very easy to get wrapped up in your little bubble and, you know, to be comparing yourself to people who are more privileged than you around you and feeling deprived. And then you suddenly are exposed to people who are really struggling and who are really without, and you realize that actually you're the privileged one. And then my question for you, how does 
understanding how privileged you are and how lucky you are positively impact your own life? Well, first off, it got me out of my own headspace and helped me start internalizing things. And to give you an idea, um, one good thing I've always had, and it came from my dad, I'm not sure, but no matter what job I did, I would always do my best at the job, even if I hated it. And ironically, before I got sent to Cuba, the one guy who said, you have the GT, you figure it out, um, he put me up for promotion to sergeant before I left. And the reason he did that is he said that he had never seen anyone hate cooking as much as I did and work as hard as I did. Mm. And it surprised the hell out of me because I couldn't stand the guy for a long time. I mean, I tolerated him after a while, but it was like there was actually some personal growth in there. And so when I left Cuba, it was like, okay, I'm in a shitty situation. I've lost my wife. I had a wife at the time. Um, She left. How do I turn this around? How do I take advantage of it? So I had one thing coming up. I could either get out which I really wasn't ready to do, didn't know where to go or what to do, or I could re-enlist. Now, the problem with re-enlisting is you can only get one of two things, either a new duty station. I was in the armpit of the world. I would definitely want it out of there or a new job. So I was talking to a recruitment guy. He talked about how he was at Fort Story, Virginia, which is this little place they nicknamed it camp story because it was so laid back. It was on the beach and just, you know, really chill command. And the people who were either there or Fort Eustis were, um, 88 hotel, which is stevedore Mm -hmm. loading ships. You gotta be somewhere where there are ships in order to load them. Right. So I was like, Hmm, how do I get out of here and get a new job? So I picked that as the MOS, which guaranteed that I wound up at least in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And then when I got that job, I did very well in the classes, et cetera. And I had already been promotable. So I became a sergeant in that field. And that field has been locked down as sergeants forever. So I actually snuck by. And I learned how to game the system. So you know how I was lied to and tricked? Well, now I figured out, hmm, here's how to game it. So I deliberately got an apartment because I could go to training and not live on base. So I had an apartment in Norfolk, which is the south side of the bridge tunnel. And when I was training at Eustace, I happened to mention, he said, oh, well, we'll just put you a story since you're already living down there. Ah, very smart. Very smart. And then when I got to story... I did one mission in my actual job as a squad leader. We were very successful. And then they put me on special duty and I became the training NCO. Which is so that, okay. So that's, and so that painful experience of having been gamed, then Mm -hmm. it seems positively impacted you. And, you know, from, from what I've learned, knowing you of assessing the system, figuring out how the system works and then figuring out how to, play within the rules to get the result that you want. And that that's that's an approach that I think has stuck with you in everything you've done since the Army. Yeah, ironically, my first job out of the Army was for Gateway Computer. 
why um, I knew nothing about the computer about computers or very little um, when I went in, but because I made a PowerPoint presentation that everyone liked, uh, that meant I knew everything about computers to the command. That's amazing. So I scramble because you got to fix a captain's computer. You don't want to get it wrong. And I actually succeeded at it. And my wife said, you know, you have kind of a knack for this. And so when I left the army, I went working for gateway computers and tech support and raised up really fast there. I went from a technician to emergency support, essentially the real problem customers, big money people that came down from the president of the company. My job was to just fix their problem and make them happy no matter what. Mm -hmm. And that was actually a pride point. I never replaced a computer. Oh, wow. Um, I had people fixing their own computers and a lot of people loved it. You know, it, it empowered them. Well, also because that means, I mean, like, honestly, you don't want to have to call tech support every single time. Like, if you can fix your own computer, then it's just faster and more efficient for you. Sure. Um. So, okay, so that's pretty amazing because, I, you know, I mean, from what I know, <clears throat> you know, you do, I mean, this really sort of the deep under, a lot of the deep underlying stuff that makes the computer world possible. Do I sound like a total idiot not knowing what I'm talking about? Yes, no, that's I'm, correct. No, nothing, nothing that special. <laughs> I mean, I, I do some web programming um, and have, but no, honestly, uh, I work with finance systems, make sure that the reports can run and the systems talk and things like that. Actually, it, it's not the most thrilling thing in the world. There, there are, there are elements of it that I feel, um, sad when I used to ride around with my dad in Tucson, I did admire the fact he would say, he'd point out a building. I built that mm-hmm. or another building. Oh yeah. I built the other side there. I did. And there is something to that, to have this tangible thing that you created. Now I'm kind of like, Oh, we were able to close period three <laughs> and everybody's stressed out of their mind and it really is okay. The books were closed for the month and who remembers period three in 2018 and 10 years? Nobody. It's just there. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, cause I mean, I think that's also part of the challenge of sort of knowledge work is, <clears throat> you know, you're doing all this stuff with ideas and, you know, it, it you don't have that tangible proof, right? I mean, it's not like, right. you know, John Aguilar. John Aguilar gets to be like, yep, I built this uh, this amazing fire pit stone installation. You can see it, right? I mean, you and me, it's, uh, you know, I mean, you sort of, and I think particularly, I mean, because it's not even like how how that is a challenge because you do need a sense of meaning and purpose in your work and so mm-hmm. how are you connecting what you're doing to something that has real life impacts that you feel are positive like how do you wrap your head around that um well that's part of why I'm doing this podcast yeah hey, lead in um i've written 3 books or wrote 2 and co-wrote one on programming i i taught for a while um before my latest job and I got a lot of satisfaction out of that while I was doing it. Um, I built our help desk that we use. I built the other system that loads all the requisitions in. So I, I do appreciate have that I built 
um, systems. So those are sort of tangible, even though they're bits. But I just try to get what satisfaction I can. I'm, you know, I'm trying to look around for, okay, what excites me or interests me? And then seize upon that. Well, and I think, you know, I mean, systems are definitely tangible. I mean, what did the founding fathers build? They built a system, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, systems are really powerful stuff. And part of the problem right now is that we don't have good systems. So I think the world powerfully needs better systems for whether it's knowledge creation within science and academia, those need to be rebooted and done better, or whether it's having more accountable government systems or educational systems or health systems, like systems design is some of the most important work going forward um, and some of the most badly needed. Um, so I think there's real, real value. I think it's just, you know, I mean, uh, there's a great Andrew Carnegie quote, right? You should spend the first third of your life learning as much as possible. The second third of your life making as much money as possible. And the <laughs> last third all away. Um, and sense. I, I think, and I think that's the point. I think, you know, I think what's exciting is, is that, you know, Eric is now at a pivot point, right? You've learned all this stuff, you have all this knowledge, and then there's a pivot of like, now where do I apply those skills? How am I going to bring that all together? And I think this podcast is part of it, but I think that also what's going to be interesting and part of what I'm going to encourage is where else can you apply all of that thinking and how else can you grow all of that thinking into new areas? Does that make sense? Sure. Sure. Um, so one, one of my other questions, okay. So, cause talk to me about like, okay, so, you know, like Teddy Roosevelt, you're a sick kid, uh, mm -hmm. who finds a lot of solace and belonging in books. Mm -hmm. So there's then this real resonance with journalism um, and a desire to be a writer. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, <clears throat> you know, you didn't get to pursue that directly cause you got hijacked into this other direction and then you've written a couple of books on coding, but is that really what fires you up in terms of writing? Like if I, if I gave, you know, Eric Hunley a MacArthur genius grant, you get a million dollars <laughs> and you get to go write or work on whatever you want. What do you do? I would become a drunk and blow all the money. No. <laughs> That's amazing. Let's get this guy a million dollars. I'm not sure. No, what would, I mean, you know, so was it when, in terms of writing, was it journalism specifically that inspired you or did you have novels in you? What were the things that. I'd like to write novels. Um, I have a couple ideas in mind, but actually sitting down and doing it, there's a, a a certain you know there's a skill issue of of working through and the time and the patience. I mean, writing the books that I did, it's not easy, as nope. you well know, and yep. it, it's ugh, it's it's almost punitive. Um, my favorite example is I'm not a big gambler. Um, I went to Vegas, did blackjack, and I came out ahead, but that was by playing careful in the system. And I thought I could make more money doing a normal job than this. This is just work. This is annoying and boring. A lot of writing is annoying and boring and hard. Just yeah, but it's, it. but it's, I think that's the thing, it, you know, I think the, the value of, I mean, if you're writing for financial rewards, 
mm-hmm. you know, uh, I agree. Like, it's not necessarily the thing that makes the most sense. Um, but, you know, I mean, obviously there are financial rewards for a small number of people, but the real value of writing and what I've come about writing and podcasting is, is that you are creating greater meaning for yourself. That's the real reward mm-hmm. because you're having to constantly restructure your own thoughts and sure. you're constantly having to connect what you're saying to your own life or contextualize it with your own life so that you're constantly reshaping your own narrative of your own life. And, um, you know, the benefits of all of that are huge. Um, and I think the other thing too, that's important about writing is, is that part of the sort of the genius myth that we've been sold on is the idea of the lone writer. Right. And, you know, you have to discipline yourself and it's a failure of discipline if you don't want to sit down at your desk and do it on your own. And in fact, if you look at most of the great writers, they existed within talent clusters. There were literary circles. There was a group of writers at a particular time and there were support networks there (laughs) where, Mm -hmm. you know, you could be stuck with an idea. I mean, you know, Mary Jared, Shelley, Lord Brian, Lord Byron, even. Yep. Uh, the Bronte sisters, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they were a team. The Inklings uh, at Oxford, which was, you know, C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, two of the greatest fantasy writers of all time, were in the same writers group. Go figure. Um, yep. It's not, it's not a coincidence, but I think that's part of it is that, you know, um, like, for example, we had, we had, you know, uh, Ed Solomon and Alex Kurtzman on the show. So Ed wrote Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Men in Black. And then Alex Kurtzman did Star Trek and Star Trek Into Darkness and The Amazing Spider-Man 2. And, you know, Brian has had this screenplay idea that he's talked about forever. Mm -hmm. But he can't get past sort of like the idea phase. And, you know, when he talks about it, it's very tentative because, you know, and, and there's just like there's a lot of emotional hurdles there. And to have these guys there and engaged and listening mm-hmm. to his idea and saying it's a good idea and encouraging him like that's what's going to like that emotional and social support is what's going to help Brian get over that hurdle to invest the time in it. So now and this is where we're going to really open up the oyster eric i want you to uh, i want you to tell me about some of your novel ideas okay um the primary it's actually a series Mm -hmm. and the baseline idea starts off with um a person not altogether different than myself i'm not sure of his age but watching the coverage of a typical um shooting involving a black kid. Hampton's a very black um, community and reacting to it, you know, to the bad cop shooting, et cetera. So that closes. I don't know if it's good to see cinematic and over the course of the story, while he's creating his own little podcast and that he's blogging and making a living doing this, he's, he's going after all this evil, it um, turns out that he has things completely backward and the system's being manipulated. It sounds like a very timely novel. I think it, the world would be better if that story was out there. And um, the other one is uh, the same character 
getting involved at the pickup artist society and mm-hmm. a murder that gets spun out of it because essentially um, a prostitute or series of prostitutes are being used to help, um, shall we say, encourage success in the school. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you've got, you know, uh, this is this. Okay. So this sounds great. Cause it reminds me almost of a detective series, Yeah, but yeah. instead, it, but it's like, it's not necessarily that your main character is a detective in the, in the direct sense where it's like, you know, oh, Sherlock Holmes, you know, no. Hercule Poirot, like we have a problem. Can you solve the case? And then ta-da, he solves it, right? It's more about that he, which is, I think this is like a, you know, the really, the experience that a lot of the world is having. And the, the what we really need to see is, is that he thinks he has the case all solved at the beginning of each story, mm-hmm. right? Right. Because his mind is confabulated and filled in. Mm-hmm. And then him realizing that he has pegged the wrong suspect, right? Or that he's come up with the wrong story mm-hmm. and then having to find out what the real story is. Right. And there's definitely growth in there. I've always been attractive or attracted to off kilter. Have you read John D. McDonald's uh, Travis McGee series? Nope. I highly recommend them. They were done in the uh, 60s and 70s. He was called a salvage operator. That's mm-hmm. what he turned Oh. Wait a minute. I've, I've, I've heard about this. Yeah. I've never read it, but I've heard about it. Yeah. 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 One of the most classic writers of the genre. He started a whole Florida bit. Um, the character took his retirement as he put it in chunks throughout his life. So you would, let's say gets conned out of a fortune, hundred thousand, whatever it is. Well, Travis McGee would go retrieve whatever he could for half of it. Yep. And then he would sock it away, live on that for a few months, couple years, whatever it is. When the kitty got low, as he put it, you know, something else would come up. And that means for some really interesting stories. Um, John D. McDonald's very, very anti, um, I don't know what you call uh, development, I guess, because Florida was being developed at the time. He kind of hated it. It was sort of into the traditional Florida. So a, a lot of it is, you know, land development deals and scammers and, and things like that. But it's great, great, great series. Okay. Have you got a, uh, a name for this series that you want to write? Is there a character name? Not yet. No, but it's going to be set in Virginia. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Um, and have you even tried outlining some of these stories on paper? Very, very lightly, but no. Well, I think that might be a good next step is for you to start outlining some of these ideas, right? Just even whatever thoughts you have, put them on paper. Sure. And then just, you know, because so much of writing is just asking the next question, right? You Mm. know this. And I think that if you even just start doing that, like just starting to ask the next question, um, then you know, you'll, you'll find your way into it. And I mean, that's, that's really, I think the challenge of writing is, is that there is this stage and, you know, right now I'm even thinking about a story that I have that I want to tell that, you know, there's a stage where you have this idea, it's a cool idea. And Mm -hmm. then there's, you know, the time and the bandwidth to like Mm -hmm. actually start doing it. But I mean, that's why you have 
writers circles because it's <laughs> it really it is like Alcoholics Anonymous like you need a support group to be able to say like I've been there I know what you're going through like it's okay you know bit by bit we'll get there together um so is that is that what 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 can I do to be helpful in that regard um just stand by I mean honestly I'm focusing really hard on trying to get unstructured up off the ground. Yeah. Um, successful. Um, and by that, I, my expectations are, are pretty, um, I think real. I, I was considering it and I've got a one in a million theory for mm-hmm. it right now. And my initial goal is that out of a million people, I should be able to find one person as an audience for my message in the English speaking world. Mm-hmm. And, so therefore, about fifteen hundred would be a good start. That's my initial goal: is to have an audience of that, and over time, hopefully, my talent improves, uh, my interviewing skills improve, and I become even more interesting to listen to. And maybe I can double that number, and then double it again, and through well, that, meet some really, really dynamic people like yourself. Well. And I think, you know, I mean, that's a low bar for dynamic, but the, um, what I, the thing that I resonated with in your write up is, um, that you talk about the way I feel most comfortable is if I have a purpose or a job to do, mm-hmm. um, then I am able to interact with others because I'm playing a role, right? Um, on this podcast, I will attempt to play the hardest role I can imagine myself, right? Mm-hmm. So, why why is it so hard to play that role of being yourself? Uh, just being vulnerable. And there's a certain arrogance. I mean, this is a very attention-seeking task. Look at me. Look at me. I have a podcast. Look at me. Look at me. Listen, listen, listen. I'm here. I'm here. And I need to, I feel that, but I need to tone that down. And you brought up the Lucho interview. I was so honored to get him on, but I feel like I might've done him a slight disservice because I was so overwhelmed in his presence that I felt like I had to make little comments or interject myself so I could be cool like he is. And that was brutal to hear because that was my look at me. And I listened to, I said, good job, Eric, you were noticeable. All right. And it didn't look so good. So these are things that I feel will help me grow as a person because I genuinely want to know whom I am sharing the moment. I, I, I want to find out different things. Um, hearing about your father, I've never really heard that much about him before, but I wanted to hear about it. I wanted to hear about how he affected you. And I, I feel like that made it so beneficial to me because I got to ask some questions I've never heard and maybe you got to share something you wanted to or didn't want to, but didn't realize, but there's a story there and, and there's a certain magic in that moment. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. I think it depends on why you're podcasting. Um, because certainly there are people who podcast because of narcissism, right? Like Mm -hmm. the point is we, the real takeaway we want you to have from the podcast is, oh, this host is so smart. 
Right. Oh, he makes such good points. Oh, he's so insightful. Oh, he asked tough questions. Right. Mm -hmm. But the, the point is that for, you know, and I mean, I would say certainly, you know, I've been definitely guilty of the look at me, look at me like behavior because I've gotten to talk like you to a lot of my heroes. And, you know, anytime you're around someone who you feel as strongly about as you felt about your grandfather, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the, the podcast could definitely turn into like, I'm holding on to your leg. I will not let go of you. You mm-hmm. will acknowledge me and love me. And like, that's, you know, that's, that's part of growing up. But <clears throat> I think part of the benefit of, you know, that consistency of you get a few hundred episodes in, you've done that, you've seen that behavior in yourself and, you know, it's it's at a certain point, it becomes about really aiming for conversation mm-hmm. and like to get past interviewing or interrogation and to get to real conversation. Mm-hmm. That's that's a challenge. It requires a lot of self-management. It requires really building a relationship with the person it requires managing, you know, what will the group think when I have this conversation right. or when I have this conversation in this way? And, you know, that that takes a lot of work and it takes just a lot of showing up and then really working on that. Um, and, you know, I, I think the, the other thing is that you, you never know how the world is going to resonate or react with whatever it is that you're saying or you're doing. So, but I think that, you know, um, like to me, it's really, you know, what it's become about is, is that it's about being of service. Like, how are you being of service to the guest? And then how are you being of service to the community of listeners? And then how are you being of service to humanity in general? Because what behavior are you modeling and demonstrating? And what are you trying to achieve there? And that's a lot of what helps get you out of your own way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think what I appreciate is, you know, you like how many episodes of Unstructured have there been at this point? <laughs> a whopping two. Yeah, there have been a whopping two. But the point is, is that it's because of the work that you've done in life that you are after two episodes, probably what it took me hundreds of episodes to reach. No, I don't know, but it has taken me years to actually pull the trigger. I mean, I, I've got all kinds of good equipment because I've been collecting it over time because I really am going to start on this. I'm really going to start on this, and I finally did it. Um, so I do think that I have internalized my listening to hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of podcasts, and that's helped some. You know, like most of the best writers read a lot. But I have so much farther to go. I, I mm-hmm. know this and really, and if I, if I'm not learning, then I'll probably get boring anyway. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> um, but the biggest thing that I feel and is a good start is it's not about me. It's about the guest. I want to meet them and I have to find every way possible to explore them to make them feel comfortable because I want them to be. Um, 
Um, when you said that there was a part of what I wrote, I thought it might be the whole part about how I wanted to make a friend. Mm-hmm. Because I would say that probably is the underlying highest goal I have for the podcast is I want to become a friend. I don't want to be more clever. I don't want to debate. I don't want to gotcha or prove them wrong or no. Who cares? There's a million people who can do that. Um, I, I see that going on all the time, like an MMA about public intellectuals. Like this person is the best. No, he's the worst. And oh my, and it's like people are getting meaning out of someone. Maybe we should just say, well, you know what? I'm just going to change the channel. Let me go to this other guy. He gives me more meaning or other gal or, or wherever we're going. But wow, um, the conflict. But MMA has been fantastic for me because in my life, I've often been the most intelligent person in the room quite often. And then. I get in the group like MMA and realize that, nope, you're in the bottom third, Eric. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know about that, but I mean, I think the, you know, I think the, the reality is that it's part of the benefit of being exposed to a lot of different people with Mm -hmm. a lot of different, you know, sort of types of intelligence is, is that you do realize just how specific and narrow your own intelligence is. Um, Mm -hmm. And that, that, I mean, I, that's the main thing is, is that that humility is healthy and, you know, that's what ultimately is going to make for a healthier human family. Um, and I think, you know, the, 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 the biggest, the most problematic behavior, right. That we're talking about here, both in terms of, you know, what you observed in yourself in the Lucho conversation, Mm -hmm. what we're observing on the internet is, is that it's that dick measuring behavior of like, I want everybody to think that I'm so smart. And, um, you know, a lot of what I've been thinking about is it all really does come down to relationships and, you know, is the relationship one of psychological trust and me really trying to understand your perspective Mm-hmm. Is it that of essentially, you know, are are the people who are taking a public role serving the role of marriage counselors between warring tribes or are they serving the role of divorce attorneys who are just trying to make the other side wrong as wrong as possible so that we mm-hmm. can feel as right as possible? Um, and I think, you know, that's that's just the challenge of human relationships. And I think that, you know, I mean, part of the reason why I want to support you and support this podcast is because I see you playing the role of marriage counselor of really trying to just, if you're trying to understand everyone's point of view, then you're humanizing them and you, instead of demonizing them or caricaturing them, you're trying to draw out like, okay, let's try and understand the full complexity of this person why did they do what they do? What's going on with them? And that's only going to be of benefit to humanity. Um, thank you. So, yeah, and thank you for doing this podcast. And so on the on the question of relationships, this might be a good way to button the show. Um, so you've been married once, and then that didn't work out, and now you're I actually, married again. Right. Um, legally speaking, I had three. 
three. Uh, okay. Yes. Um, third time's the charm. The first one, I was very young. Um, she was my girlfriend. And the only real way to stay together, et cetera, and get housing money was to get married. Mm -hmm. So got married for the benefits. Um, we were very immature and things didn't work well. When I was in Cuba, I, the letter, um, the mail system is horrible. Um, you would write letters and then you have to get them into the States. She was in California. I was in Cuba and I would write letters almost every day and I would try to call when I could, but I don't know you're young, but in the nineties we didn't have Skype, dude. Yeah. We didn't have, I mean, we didn't even have a dime a minute at Sprint or any of that crazy stuff. It was expensive. It, we're talking, it was dollars per minute. And I was poor. Mm -hmm. um, and irresponsible. So some of my poorness was not only not having money, but also being very irresponsible when I did have money. So I couldn't afford to call her. And when we did talk, she'd be like, I didn't get any letters. I wrote you, I wrote you. And well, she found somebody else in that period uh, it was about a month and ironically about a week after i found out she found somebody else um i think 12 letters arrived on the same day at her place but looking back at it we weren't really meant to be together yeah i mean truthfully then the second marriage was just stupid um it was an honor bound type thing i told told her that I would marry her and I felt like I was obligated. That was the stupidest mm. thing I've ever done. It's like, I, I didn't even really like her that much. And then I was very fortunate to meet my current wife who, um, we celebrate 20 years this summer. Wow. So I, I, you know, the second one's irrelevant. The first one was a young Probably shouldn't have married. Just, you know, a young girlfriend, essentially. And then my wife, who's everything. Yeah, and so tell me about your wife. Like, so she was a librarian. Yeah, she is the uh, Fort Story librarian. And Aha. Uh, uh -huh. And also, I mean, what a, if you're going to be a librarian anywhere, Fort Story, that's where you're a librarian. There you go. It's pretty amazing. Um, she had uh, the most Awesome library. Uh, to this day, it is my favorite library because it was small. It was a, a World War II temp building, which literally meant they had it in World War II to be a temporary dwelling, and it was still there, but it was small. And it had everything, though. I mean, she was so hyper-focused on her customers, which were a lot of them were retirees, and then they were younger. A lot of the army, let's just say, don't bother with a library. Right. But to have a small library that almost everything is relevant or topical and nice is amazing. It really is. I've, I've gone to bigger libraries and just having more stuff doesn't make it better. Mm -hmm. Her curation and her weeding is astounding. And after all these years, she's burnt out on her field, but she still loves making displays like, Oh, I want to have a display with narrators this month, or I'm going to do mysteries, or you know. And she gets excited at building those type of things, etc. So, I went in there, and of course, I'm going to drift to the library pretty early on, um, when I hit the post, and I met her, 
there saw her and she's she's older than I am by a few years but um I was very 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 attracted to her and I took advantage of my position of power because I was in charge of a detail um, with a soldier who was actually kind of an idiot and a mess up. But he went to the library all the time. So I used him because I was in charge of him to go um, be a messenger back and forth with her to feel it out. Hey, is she interested? Hey, hey, hey. And he kind of did. And I got a positive you know, feedback. So then I approached her and what I like most about her is she is uh, very direct mm-hmm. and in, in many ways, some almost masculine in behavior, if that makes sense. Very, um, mm-hmm. on our first date, she's embarrassed by, it, but I loved it. She was like, if you ever give me flowers, I like carnations. I don't like roses, <laughs> but I like that. You know, it's, yeah. it is nice to have clarity. Right. Well, and especially, I mean, it sounds like, especially out of what your first two relationships were, where it sounds like there was bad communication, right? Having Mm -hmm. that sort of direct, really clear communication, like I could understand why you would value that so much. Yeah, I I don't, I never got into that whole push-pull game of how long do you wait to call back? And yeah, it it was a direct, I like you. And she's like, okay, so what's your intention? And she asked me Mm -hmm. flat out, and it's like, I like you. I, I, I wanted to you know, date you. And I mean, it was, it was direct. It was like, there was no filter and yep. thank God because I'm not that suave. I am not that clever. It's just not in, in me. Well, but also, I mean, I think this, the suaveness, I mean, again, like it's, it's like all of these things, you can always characterize it in a positive light or a negative light, right? Suave, characterized positively is like you know charming and like charismatic charismatic and all of that but it's also could just be manipulative (laughs) and like that we're not being straightforward about what we want and all that sort of stuff and i think there's a difference between sort of suave as being playful which i think Mm. is a is a great thing but if if the suaveness becomes manipulative rather than um, you know, just sort of like playful, but we're being straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and again, this is where cultural fit between, you know, two people becomes so important. Like, sure. do you value the same thing? So, um, no, that's, that's great. That's great. And, um, I, I value that a lot too. And I think the push pull thing is stupid. Like <laughs> it's really, you know, some cultures do it and I've dated people from those cultures and it's not something that I enjoy. I find it exhausting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so often it then just sets up frustration and disappointment because you didn't do what was expected of you, but it was never clear that those were the expectations. Like you're being expected to demonstrate levels of psychicness that I think are just, you know, not available outside the X-Men comics. Um, I agree. <laughs> Um, so, so that's, that's really great. And so you guys have now been married for 20 years nope, and summer. how, cause I think what's also interesting too, is, you know, as you talk about your wife being really good at curation, mm-hmm. like that's so much of what humanity needs right now. And so much of what I realized that I'm trying to do with mixed mental arts is the knowledge exists. It's just mm-hmm. so pure, poorly curated that 
people are walking into this giant library of the internet mm-hmm. and they don't even know what to look. They don't know how to even begin to sort of break this down or to, you know, sift out the best stuff or to be able to find some sort of appealing display and like, oh, I'm going to go look at narrators right now and I'm going to really dig into that. And then, oh, there's this cool display on this, 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 this. And I think that that's um, Sean Kilburn, who's also a librarian or was trained in the, in library science, was that, you know, he made some comment on the Facebook thread about how curation is the most important thing in the age of the Internet. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that's, you know, obviously the point of unstructured is to be unstructured. Mm-hmm. But a, a great library is unstructured in the sense that you know, there's not a correct way to walk through the library. We haven't roped out like you're going to go down aisle three, then double back to aisle four. And, you know, but at the same time, it is curated. Sure. Sure. I just want one of my worries, though, is I want to be um, truthful in my curation because Mm -hmm. I want it to be a curation and not a filter. Right. Um. So I think that's that's something that I'm going to be interested to see is, you know, since you have this great curator who is such a central part of your life, how are you, do you see yourself going forward with this po- podcast, balancing the, you know, the title of Unstructured mm-hmm. with appreciating the value of, uh, you know, a well-curated library? At this point, I'm still exploring, and I'm working with Isaiah Gooley, who you well know, um, doing the sound. And as part of it, my current plan is every fifth episode, um, starting with the first one to meet Isaiah, and then from then on, every fifth episode is going to be a Chilling with Isaiah segment. And I think in these talks, we can discuss what we've actually done so far, or what what guests we've had, what meaning we've gotten out of it, and where are we going? Are we still interviewing? Are we going to do more soundscapes? Do we want to put some of Isaiah's cool music in? Um, And that's sort of my loose goal, is to use that every five-episode clock to sort of check in. Here I am. Mm -hmm. Here's where we are. This is where maybe we'll go next, you know, next round. I think that sounds awesome. Well, and I am excited to watch that evolution, uh, both for you and for Isaiah and then for the community that you're building here. Um, And, you know, I think that's a nice place to end this first interview. But there is a lot more to explore in Eric Hunley. And I'm excited (laughs) to both hear that revealed as you interview people. And then I think that it might be good periodically to also do one of these check-ins where either, you know, it doesn't have to just be me, but like, I think it'd be good to periodically have Eric interviewed by somebody, uh, mm-hmm. maybe, uh, maybe somebody else who's been a guest on the show. Like I'd be mm-hmm. interested to hear Lucho interview Eric um, or, you know, some of the other guests that you're going to have on here. Cool. That, that would be interesting. It, of course, makes my um, insights cringe because I'm not necessarily in love with talking about myself. And I think that's why it's so important. <laughs> um, well, thank you, Eric. Thanks for allowing me to do this. 
Well, thank you. And stop recording. Perfect. Awesome, man. Hey there. Thanks again for listening. And if you don't mind, please tell a friend. If you like the content, most apps you listen to probably have a button to share it. Also, check us out on social media. We're under Unstructured P on most systems.